We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. And, of course, you can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button. And, of course, listen to older archive shows as well. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody feeling today? Great. Thank good, you. Good. Good yeah. stuff. So we're going to start off with income splitting for Canadians. Income splitting for Canadians. And mm-hmm. uh, I hope everybody got their RSPs in at the but before the end of the deadline yeah. this week. And uh, I think it's it's a little bit of a stressful time. I did read somewhere uh, that actual, the number of contributions people contributing were down this year. Yeah, I heard but that. But the dollar amount was up. Yeah. So I don't know if that How do really, we explain that's that? That's probably, yeah. I'd rather see more people contributing in yeah. terms of making that commitment to savings. Talk about this many a times, but it's really today. It's not a retirement crisis; it's a savings crisis. No. What are we putting away, and are we doing enough to make sure we have a comfortable retirement? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's that explains that exactly. Because you look at uh, you know how much debt people are in right now. Yeah, and yeah. You say, well, I can't do an RSP. I can't even borrow for an RSP. I'm right to the nines right now. So yeah. um, I guess that RSP is going to maybe go away, right. and I won't have to wait. And at least the room gets carried for it. Right. So at yeah. least you don't lose it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. So I was in the dentist chair this week for for an hour for some surgery. And yeah. meanwhile, the dentist and the dental assistant are having a conversation about, uh, you know, just investments and savings. And I'm just, I'm, I'm chuckling inside because I can't talk. I've got yeah. a dam across my mouth and yeah, there's nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, and they're saying, well, real estate's never going to go down in value. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I just wish I could find an investment. And then they, they had, Did you explain <laughs> to them you weren't working at this I point? Know, they you didn't know what I did. They didn't know what I did because it was a new office that I was sure, in. They didn't and know. I was heckling. <laughs> and I had no, and I couldn't talk at all. I'm just, my eyes, I'm just kind of rolling my eyes. I'm listening. It's fascinating to me. And, um, and the one in the dental hygienist had, um, assistant had, uh, investment in copper. They were sort of playing the game in copper and I'm thinking, wow, wow this is, this is really entertaining. Actually, I'm enjoying <laughs> listening to this. What kind of drugs were you on at the time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, as in terms of trying to help Canadians, one of the things you always want to be thinking about is how to minimize tax mm-hmm. and RSPs are obviously a great way to do that. But there's lots of other strategies that Don and I will uncover as we meet with somebody, we go over a personal financial review, get an understanding of where they are, and a review of their tax returns. And, you know, one of the things, I think a good measurement, if you know, you know you're dealing with a, with a financial planner, a certified financial planner, if when they meet with you on an annual basis, they ask to see your notice of assessment mm. or to see your actual tax return to go over it. And I've got an interesting story I might get to share in terms of how a tax return can go bad, mm. <laughs> in terms of bad advice on on your returns or being too aggressive. Let's put it that way. Um, so one of the th- one of the strategies that we'll we'll consider is lending money to your spouse. I know Don's talked about it. I've talked yeah. about it. But this is where you can make uh, loan money to your spouse and charge what's called a prescribed rate of interest on the loan. Today, that interest rate that you must charge your spouse is 1%. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that your money can earn more than 1%, you're actually now shifting more income to your spouse. So mm-hmm. quick example might be you had 100 grand. Yeah. Uh, I could invest that myself as yourself. If you're in the highest tax bracket, if that made 3%, in dividends, three thousand dollars. You're going to pay about forty uh, percent is the tax rate on that at the highest rate. So it's about twelve hundred dollars. If I loan that same hundred thousand to my spouse and they earn the three thousand dollars of dividends, 
the first thousand they have to pay back to me. Mm-hmm. So I have to claim that as interest income, and that's going to be taxed at um, uh, at fifty three percent. So there's about five hundred and thirty bucks, and I'm going to pay there. But the other two thousand, if they make under, if your spouse makes under forty six thousand, roughly they will pay zero tax on that dividend. Mm-hmm. And so every year, basically you would pay, uh, as the person who lent the money, you're gonna pay about 500 bucks in tax, and you're gonna save somewhere around $700 every year mm-hmm. in taxation. So I think that's uh, that's something that's often overlooked. There's opportunities to income split using a loan to your spouse. Now, the interesting thing, I've come across a few people that are have private corporations, and a lot of the times money's been built up in those private corporations, and I just came across this this past uh, couple weeks, actually, where the private corporation, which was owned by, in this case, the husband, mm-hmm. the, the, the wife in this case didn't make a lot of money. Well, they actually lent the money, just as Andy was mentioning, using the private corporation money mm-hmm. at 1% to the spouse, and, this, and now the spouse, the wife in this case, got all the income, so she, she would get like 4 or 5%, whatever it was invested in, mm-hmm. and she had to pay the 1% back to the corporation, the 1%. So right. the same rule applied and allowed for income splitting where, and, and quite, and this is often the case in, uh, in dental practices, um, some doctor practices, where there might be a stay-at-home mm-hmm. husband or wife, and this is a great way for income splitting, just as Andy was yeah. mentioning. And the second one I was going to mention, which is sort of along the same line, but it's basically the second generation income can be split. In other words, the government said, listen, you can't just shift money around between spouses yeah. in, in an effort to reduce your taxes. It has to, The person who invests that money has to have earned that money. Mm-hmm. So if you can't demonstrate that you earned it and saved it, then in many cases, they will attribute the income back to the spouse. So, right. so I can't just gift a $100,000 to my spouse without the income it earns being attributed back to me. Right. So I could do that. So let's say I did that. I, I give my spouse a uh, hundred grand and they earn 3% on it. So they make 3000 bucks. Well, under these attribution rules, uh, assuming they couldn't have saved that themselves, then I would pay tax on that three grand mm-hmm. every year. But if we take the three grand and we put it into a separate account, same type of investment, but a separate account, now the three grand earns another 3%. Well, in right. the first year, that's 90 bucks. It's not very much. But that compounding, mm-hmm. that $90 that was earned, the interest on the interest, or in this case, dividends on the dividends, I don't pay tax on that. My spouse pays tax on it. Right. So for the next 10 years, basically, if you're visualizing that on the 100 grand, I would pay tax on the 3,000 it earns every year. Mm -hmm. But every year that 3,000 is siphoned off and goes into a separate account. Right. And by the end of 10 years, there's 30,000 in there. Mm -hmm. And that 30,000 at 3% is generating $900 a year, which is taxed in my spouse's hands. So in this case, I haven't set up a formal, I haven't set up a loan, I haven't done anything. I've just gifted it to them, but I was willing to pay tax on the initial income it earns, but the compound interest will be taxed in my spouse's right. hands. So right. it is a way to sort of begin to trickle more and more income every year into the hands of your of your spouse. Um, uh, another income splitting strategy, basically having your higher the higher income spouse pay expenses. And this kind of leads to that one I, or refers back to the one I was just talking about. In in essence, if if you make if your spouse makes twenty thousand dollars a year and you make a hundred thousand dollars a year, if I spent 
if, if the person making a hundred thousand used all of their income to pay for the household expenses and everything associated with their living and lifestyle, and the person who made the twenty thousand didn't spend a dime, then they could invest that money in their own name. And the and the interest and income would be earned on that would be taxed in their own name. Right. So the really what you're doing to demonstrating to Revenue Canada in this scenario is you're saying um, my spouse now has a hundred thousand dollars in their name. Five years later, they made twenty grand a year. Where did they get that money from? Well, they never spent a dime that they earned. Yeah. Everything that we spent, I spent from my income of a hundred thousand. But my spouse's lower income, we saved every penny of it. Right in their name. So that's a just way, a, a way to demonstrate or guarantee that you're proving to Revenue Canada where that money came from. Uh, another one, transferring your pension income to your spouse. This is becoming more and more common knowledge in the sense of income splitting. And it's available from age 65 onward for anything in terms of uh, RIF money, uh, certainly any pension monies. But if you're receiving a monthly pension from a business or from, sorry, from a retirement, or if you retired from a, a defined benefit pension plan and you're receiving a regular pension from that, uh, you can split that at any time. And the key advantage here, obviously, you can split up to half of it to your spouse. And the idea is you want to produce or lower your marginal tax rate to the right. lowest possible between the two of you. And it's funny, I've seen... Um, I've seen scenarios where people have missed this because they're either not using a tax preparer, an individual professional who's doing it. And the reason being for that is that those individuals, anybody who has access to software today, there's literally a button on most of these software packages that allows you to optimize your pension splitting between spouses or partners. And so I've seen people that are for their own, and I and I give them a pat on the back for doing it manually, yeah. filling out the form. Uh, and right. so they would play with numbers. They yeah. would say, well, what if I did 15,000? Well, what if I did 20,000? What if I did 25? So they're running through a bunch of different gyrations. Mm-hmm. And you imagine what the computer does that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, it can nail it down to the actual dollar, yeah. you know, how much, you know, it should be $14,361 is your optimum amount. So pension splitting is something to make sure if you're either doing it yourself you're using a tax, or if you're not using a tax preparer, I think it's worthwhile buying the software yeah. to be able to push that optimization button yourself. Um, contributing to a spousal RSP. Actually, you know what? I'm going to skip. That. I'm going to come back to that one in a second. I want to talk about reporting, uh, reporting your spouse's dividends on your tax return. So we've talked a lot already about how you can't just shift money around between spouses. And there is a, a unique scenario where, where Revenue Canada actually allows you to, and you're entitled to, shift money from one person's name to another. And that's when you earn dividend income. So my spouse earns dividend income. And by shifting that income over to me, it would allow them to increase or allow me to increase the spousal credit that I get for, for having a, a being married and having a spouse or partner. So in this case, the, the credit is $11,474. So that's, so if my spouse earned no money at all, right. that's the maximum credit, which generates about $2,400 of tax savings to me. So it's pretty, it's pretty significant. So let's say, uh, my spouse earned $10,000 of dividends. Um, sorry, $10,000 and 2000 of that was dividends. So by shifting that $2,000 to me, lowers their income to 8,000. 
And that therefore increases my spousal credit that I would be eligible for them. So this is, even though they earned that money, they earned those dividends, uh, there's an advantage for it to report that income on my tax return and have them uh, deduct that from their tax return. So it's one of the few times you can income split without having to go through all these nuances and shifting and loaning, et cetera. Um, We talked about, Don was talking about a corporate loan. You can make a corporate loan if you have a related student. And let's say, for example, I own my own corporation, I'm in business for myself, and uh, the company, my company could lend my adult child, who is a student, an amount that would basically look after covering their income and their expenses for while they're at school. And if they don't repay that money to me at the end of the year to the corporation, it gets added into their income and they have to pay tax on it. Hmm. So basically they're in a low income, so I could loan them 15 grand, they'd pay very little tax, they never pay it back. Now they get into the workforce five years later and they're making a good income. If I ask for the money back at that point, they get a full deduction of whatever they pay back to me when they're in a higher tax bracket. Oh, wow. So they got the money from us, from me and the corporation when they're in a low tax bracket, paid very little. They pay it back to me when they're in working at a full-time job, earning a good income. Now they get a full deduction of that amount from their tax return when they pay it back. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are with us from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. As well, you can go to the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call and leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Talking about income splitting. Income splitting. So I just wanted to carry on a couple of more items that, I, that I've seen and run across. And one is investing for a minor in a minor child's name. And so again, we have a family unit where the parents have, asked, have investments that are earning income. And so the question is, can I get some of that income into my child's name? because they don't pay any tax. They're at a very low tax rate. Um, They have no other income. And a minor, anybody under the age of 18 is considered a minor in Ontario. And so generally, when you give money to a minor uh, and they invest that in their name, these attribution rules I was talking about kick in again, where any interest that you earn, that 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 money earns, Mm -hmm. or any dividends that that money earns, is attributed back to the parent. Right or the grandparent, or the aunt, or the uncle. People often forget that too. It extends right beyond this, the immediate family. So, um, but there's one type of income that is not attributed back, and that's capital gains. So if I can invest $10,000 in my child's name as a minor, the account will be set up as an informal in-trust account, meaning there's no formal trust created by a lawyer, et cetera. The parents would have to sign on behalf of the child because they're not a legal entity to be able to sign yet. So they can open up an account. They invest $10,000 in the minor's name. So the investment doesn't earn any income. It doesn't earn any interest, doesn't earn any dividends. But if the share price of that investment goes from say $10 to $20, and now it's worth 20 grand, and the cash it in, it's all capital gain, 
and capital gains are taxed in the hands of the minor child. They're not taxed back in the hand of the parent. So it is an effective way to income split. I have had many parents that have done this. And, um, and then the only risk is that once the child turns 18, it technically is their money. Right. So they could call me up and say, hey, I want that 20 grand. I'm, I'm looking at a new car, you know, whatever. Um, but generally, parents have enough influence over that type of <laughs> transaction <laughs> that it doesn't slip away that easily. Um, I, I, the first call I'd make on when I hung up <laughs> to the mom and dad yeah, to say, really? by the way, did you know? And they say, oh, yeah, that's okay. Or no, 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 wait a minute. We need, yeah. it. We need to have a chat with him before you proceed with that <laughs> transaction. <laughs> um, the other area is, uh, is spousal RRS. RSPs and um, spousal RSPs are a great way. And I know, um, and this is really the opportunity to shift, and why people do it is to shift future income into the hands of a spouse and either to equalize if somebody has a really good pension and the other person doesn't, uh, the other person makes a high income, the other person doesn't. Or in the case of, um, you know, if my, sp- if my wife were going to be off on maternity leave, for example, and her income was going to be reduced, not fully covered through her work, that might be an opportunity. Or she wants to take an extra year off or, uh, after maternity leave, that might be an opportunity to plan ahead and be able to put money into a spousal RSP and then withdraw it during those low income years and pay very little tax on that withdrawal. Right. So the trick is, when do you uh, when do you do it, and when can you take it out? And so we had uh, one listener ask a question. You know, I put money into a spousal RSP February twenty eighth, twenty sixteen. So February twenty exactly a year ago this week, and uh, they put in ten thousand dollars. So they want to know when can I take that out and not have it taxed back into into my hands, and so. There's, I'm going to give you three possible answers, and you're going to tell me which one's correct. All right. So the first option is, so remember, they took it out a year ago, February 28th, 2016. Can they take it out, number one, January 1st, 2019, March 1st, 2019, or March 1st, 2018? I'd say the middle one. March 1st, 2019? Yeah. Right. So you're going under the three. It's That's not, that's not correct. It was actually the first one. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a false. That was like an Oscars moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's look at the oh, other envelope. Wrong envelope. Yeah. I want to get Don's envelope, Andy. <laughs> the question is, the answer is January 1st, 2019, which works out to about 34 months. So technically, if you make a contribution, you cannot redeem uh, money from a spousal RSP the, the year you make it. Yeah or the previous two years you've made it. So in this case, the correct answer is January 1st, 2019. Three years. Yeah, yeah, three years altogether. Uh, Only 34 months though, not technically three years. Mm. And so there's the trick. So if we back that up, if that listener had made the contribution December 31st, 2015, so 60 days earlier, then their withdrawal date would have been January 1st, 2018. Only 24 months plus one day. So they're going to have to wait an extra 10 months to get that money out. Whereas a little bit of planning ahead of time, they would have saved some, they would have offered, had some more flexibility. Right. So that's the spousal RSP and the investment minor. I don't know. Do you loan spout? Do you loan? Do you put money in a spousal RSP if your spouse isn't a Leafs fan? <laughs> Ooh, Is that a rule? I don't know if I'd be basing anything on being a Leafs fan. Don wanted to tell yeah. me all about his Leaf, his, his Maple well, Leaf strategy. So it's my, it's, my, it's the, you know, should you invest like a lease fan? I don't know. 
I don't feel comfortable about any of this. There's got to be a couple with rookies, of rookies, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's looking pretty. You're good. planning for the next five years. Uh, <laughs> you know, Mitch Marner's looking today. good. This, you know, but you know what? It's only been. 50 years since they won the Stanley Cup. Is that Ooh. all? That is it. Oh, my goodness. That's about how long we've had RSPs. I think. That's right. Pretty yeah. close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, the, the more interesting part is it's been 13 years since they made the playoffs. Yeah. 2004. Yeah. Wow. 2004. Wow. You know what? You think about a person could have been born and they're now a teenager. They've never seen, never seen their team make the yeah, playoffs. Yeah, yeah. And you wonder why they're wearing, all these young kids are wearing other jerseys these That's days, right? right? <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. But they got one thing going for them. They support that team. Like they got short memory. Yeah. They yeah. support it no matter what. Yeah. They are in filling that uh, Air Canada Center yeah. no matter what. It doesn't matter. It, they could be playing the best team. They could be losing in a 10-game losing streak, and we've seen this. Okay. I don't know. I hear lots of stories about people sneaking down from the purples to the gold seats, though. There's a lot of yeah, empty seats yeah, down there. Yeah. Well, you come, they come the third <laughs> well, period. Those guys are underground in, eating and drinking. <laughs> okay, that's right. <laughs> well, it is interesting. They, they, they have a very short memory. They never look in the rearview mirror. They're always thinking positive on this year is going to be different. Yes. We're going to put, you imagine if the stock market had never had a positive year, call that the playoffs, for 13 years. Yeah. How many people would be putting money in the stock market? We'd be as financially depressed as we are emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and if you think about the long-term goal, 50 years of investing, and you really, what's the chance? You only got one in 50 years of making the Stanley yeah, Cup? Really. And, and You're ticking off more and more Leaf fans right now. <laughs> They're just not getting anything out of their investment in this team. Exactly. Emotionally, they are losing like yeah. crazy. However, if they use that exact same kind of emotional energy saying, okay, well, it's been a couple, it's been a bad year with the stock market. I'm going to put it in and I'm going to buy when it's down. I'm going to go in no matter what. I wonder where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the interesting thing about the, the stock market in general, it's averaged 6.6% above inflation for 200 years. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's only had one negative year every four years. Now, we've been on a bit of a roll lately. We had a negative year two years ago. So Canada had a negative 14% year in 2015. And uh, it would have been a great time to buy. In fact, if you look at February 11th, 2016, we just had, it was like another huge negative experience. The market was lousy. It was the worst start of any stock market ever, mm -hmm. ever in the history of the stock market. And had you invested on February 11th of 200, uh, 2016 till, till literally a year later, you would have made 30%. Hmm. Okay. If you're a Leaf fan and you had that Leaf mentality, you say, I'm going to go no matter what. And you put money in you'd be extremely excited, actually a lot more excited than had you been a Leaf fan all those years. That's right. Okay, because yeah. you would have made money. And this is the interesting thing with the, with the market, it does go to the mean. It does average out. No matter when you invest, you will get close to the average return. If you do happen to buy when there's a loser season, so to speak, you could actually do a lot better. The thing with the Leafs, there's really no guarantee they'll ever win. Okay. Now, no, come, like on, the stock. come on. Come on. There's no guarantee. There's lots of teams out there. Look at they've proved for 13 Imagine years. If I, if I looked at my portfolio that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just thought, well, this would be, you know, if people looked that way as everything being on sale when it was down, that would be great. And normally it's interesting. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. It's on sale. It's on yeah. sale. Things are on sale. And it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, when – 
On average, the stock market has a pullback of 14% per year. In 2016, uh, the first six weeks was minus 11. In 2015, it was minus uh, 15 in the summer, sorry, minus 13 in the summer of 2015. So this is kind of a normal yin and yang of the markets, but it, boy, does it ever hit the press when it has a minus 10% mm -hmm. period. And this happens on average. Are you average. saying we report more yangs than yings? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And we get emotional about it, but the wrong way. We go fleeing. It's, it's unbelievable. So you look at the last two years and you think, okay, how have things been? I think Don's saying we should abandon the Leafs, abandon the Leafs yeah. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's how, been do, a, how, do, how do my son's Boston Bruins fit into this? <laughs> They've done a lot better. There's sort of more happy Bruins fans, and uh, my Rangers are doing pretty good of late too. But I, you know, I'm looking at the cash flows of mutual funds in 2015, and the last time, it's interesting, the last time there was more money going in to U.S. mutual funds was the first quarter of 2015. It's been, call it all of 2015, all of 2016, of n more money being pulled out of the US stock market than being put in. Mm. And there's always great reasons, but there's no blind faith. In the least, there's blind faith. They're gonna go and support <laughs> it no matter what. It is totally blind. Yeah. There's a lot of blindness, but I'm looking here and I'm saying, well, in spite of the market rising, and there's temporary downturns, but you look at any chart and you can look at it forever, as long as you don't take a short-term chart, but you look at it like any period of 10 years or greater, mm -hmm. you're gonna see a positive return. And yet, people in general are pulling money out of the stock market, and again, in the last uh, almost two years, it's been more money coming out of the US stock market going in, and yet last year, again, February to February, it's been a 30% return. So those people pulling money out never got to get that return. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, I'm abandoning them. Yeah. I've been a Leaf fan for two years now. They didn't make the Stanley Cup. I'm jumping to another team. Yeah. And uh, it's just not fair. It's in, But the market work, doesn't work that way. So maybe mutual funds should come with a jersey. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, have I think more it's loyalty. good. Yeah. yeah. You know what? That's you know, good marketing. Mascot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> all we need, more marketing. <laughs> That's good marketing, Scott. <laughs> and it's and it's interesting. Dalbar, um, who is... Uh, basically an independent um, service that goes through all the returns of what th the markets have done. And generally it's always US because it's the largest market. And, and you know, Canada represents 3% of the world. So I can understand you know, why you want to study that one. Let's study what 60% of the world in mm -hmm. terms of the stocks are, and that's the US. Plus it's far more diversified. So I'm a true blue Canadian, but I can understand why they take their more energy in terms of uh, studying the US. And it was interesting, you look at what the Standard & Poor's 500. Mm -hmm. So that's the top 500 stocks have done. And in the last three years, it has done um, you know, pretty good, actually. It's done about 8.8%. Uh, Sorry, 15.15% is actually what the Standard & Poor's did in the last three years. But what has the actual investor made? 9%. Okay, so not even close. The average investor is not even close, but that's only three years. Let's go a little longer. If you go the last 10 years, the Standard & Poor's has averaged 7.31. The investor has averaged four. Hmm. Okay, it's lost almost half of its return. Now you could say, you could argue it's fees, you know, there and there's management fees and say mutual funds, and it could be 2%. So if you just did 2% off that, you'd still made 5.5%. Well, let's go 20 years. The average return has been 8% for the stock market, 
and 4.5% for the investor's return. Again, just, just over half. And you can go even further. The 30-year return, which is really interesting, for the Standard & Poor's 500 has been 10.35%. said, wow, you know, if I had stuck that in mm-hmm. to an average mutual fund, you would have made probably 9% anyway. If you just did nothing, went to sleep, never took the money out. The average client inside the fund, because they study the flows of how much money's going in, how much money's going out of all the funds. If you had to guess, 10% for the stock market, what do you think the average client got? I'm guessing half. Yeah, that's what? the trend. That's what I would have guessed too, but it's not even that good. 3.66. Hmm. So I, I studied that. And you know, these are just numbers. So let's put some dollars to it. Okay. So let's say you had 100 grand 20 years ago and you were able to get just the average. The, you know, you went to sleep, mm-hmm. went under a tree, Rumpel, what's that, uh, Rumpelstiltskin or uh, Rip Van Winkle. Yeah. And your, your 100 grand would have grown to 482,000. Not too bad. But the average investor would have got 249000 You would have had a decrease in your portfolio of 233000 That's what That's the opportunity cost. That's what you're missing out on. Unfortunately, what clients see, they don't keep track of it that well. They say, hey, I've done pretty good. I got 249000 They don't notice the two thirty-three they missed. Yeah, they Plus, don't. it's kind of like going to Vegas. How many people you actually go here and say, yeah, I lost a fortune in Vegas? You always <laughs> hear, you know, you never hear that. <laughs> So yeah, terrible again, lost again. Or they again. made 1000 bucks. but how much did you start with? Well, yeah. 900 <laughs> I, I generally find yeah. most people broke even. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, broke even. I don't know what the definition of breaking even, but that usually yeah. means they lost, though. I only lost $1,000. Right. <laughs> I broke even. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you had that $100,000, 20 years later, 2% inflation, it actually works out to 148000 So just inflation alone, you need 148,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so your 249 is really only 100,000 above inflation. If you just put it in and went to sleep and, and had it in the market for the whole time, you would have had 334,000. It's a difference of 233,000. Wow. Okay, so your own money literally triples after inflation by just leaving it alone. So. Yes, uh, in the whole Dalbar report, the title of it was, I loved it, it says, yes, we still suck at investing, hmm. okay? <laughs> and the biggest reason is behavior. It isn't the investment fees. That was second, okay? Mm-hmm. But by far, behavior is the biggest cost to investing by pulling money out. And you can just see it by the fund flows. Last two years, more people are pulling money out of the market, even though the market has been rising. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call 905-529-7165 right now. Leave a message. They will get back to you. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at Andy and Don, all one word, andyanddon.com. You can check out old shows and as well ask questions via the, the listener inquiry button there. Understanding MERs. What does this mean? And Understanding MERs. An MER is a short form for management expense ratio. Mm-hmm. And as part of an industry-wide initiative uh, beginning in July of this year, July 2017, a portion of these MER fees that are paid to, in this case, investors group for us, uh, for servicing client accounts that's going to appear annually on their statement 
in in dollar terms mm-hmm. so that people are, oh, wow. in terms of transparency and in terms of trying to understand what are the expenses that are associated with your account and what it costs to have the advice that you're receiving and so as don was talking about the last section you know if the index often an analogy is made if the index averaged 10 percent over the last 20 years was there um uh, did you was some of that growth lost when you have a mutual fund due to the cost of the fund right. operating the fund, and uh, and I guess in theory that there would be if if the fund cost two percent as a management expense ratio, then if and the and the index averaged ten, then you would think well the fund maybe did eight yeah. that would be a neutral position. Mm-hmm. So if there was no value added at all, kind of the worst case scenario would be eight. But typically every fund manager has the ability to add value in there in terms of their investment choices. Either they reduce the volatility of your investment, uh, and you may capture the full ten percent even though you are paying that two percent fee. But um, you know so the but the cost of that and what is involved in it we're 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 trying to make more transparency surrounding that for consumers starting in July of this year. So basically your June statements will involve or disclose what that information is, how much it was in in dollar terms. Exactly. So you will find out the fee that your uh, advisor makes in the dollar. Uh, No, it's not, it's not actually that clear. What it, what you're, what you're going to find out is what the dealer is paid. Okay. And the dealer then pays your advisor. Right. Okay. So maybe there, it's a 50, 50 split, something like that. Uh, well, we wish it was 50, 50. I was going to say, um, so when you invest in a mutual fund, the, the fund pays certain management and distribution related expenses. And the MER is the total amount of those expenses. And it's it's expressed as a percentage of the mutual fund's total assets. It will vary, though, depending, the MER varies depending on a lot of factors, the type of fund, expenses It might be unique to a fund. For example, it might be a, a fund that invests overseas in Asia that has mm-hmm. additional costs associated with that. Um, and basically, a portion of that MER is attributed to the dealer, and that the dealer investors group in this case, and it'll be reported as a dollar amount on your statement. And we're trying to help people understand what is the products and services that you get provided through through that. So a sample breakdown of an MER, basically uh, on the total MER, 44% of that goes to investment management. So that is paying the investment um, professionals who are making decisions day in and day out, what investments should be held, what should be um, um, increased or decreased or removed from the portfolio to minimize risk and maximize return. 8% is taxes, so federal, provincial taxes, HST or uh, PST and and GST for those separate. Uh, 10% of the MER is administration and other fund services. And 38% of the MER are the dealer services. So the dealer services is where Don and I would be paid out of for a client account. And the dealer services costs are the amounts that you're going to see showing up on that statement in 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 July 2017. Um, So if we assume that 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 38% of the MER is attributed to the dealer services. Here's an example, for example, what you would pay on a $10,000 investment. So if the fund MER was 2%, uh, the total MER would be $200 on 10,000. The dealer fee reported on your statement would be $76, okay? Uh, If your fund MER was 1.75%, it would be $175 total MER. $67 would be the dealer fee reported on the statement. Now, 
Other types of investments also have fees associated with them. But at this point, investments such as segregated funds or guaranteed investment funds, they at this point don't don't have to report this information yet, basically because they're not subject to the Canadian securities regu- regulations or a self-regulatory organization rules. So when you think about that dealer cost, the the amount that's paid to the dealer, what is what does that cover? It covers administration systems, the compliance supervision, professional registration, account statements, tax reporting, online access to your account, and membership in the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, membership in regulatory organizations, and membership in industry and professional organizations as well. And then offered through your consultant, through Don and I, it would be comprehensive planning for you in terms of your investment planning, your retirement planning, your taxation advice and planning, insurance planning, and estate planning. In addition to that, portfolio analysis, uh, ongoing advice, and regular reporting and communication, and probably the most important, which is strategy implementation. So what we find is that, you know, we talk a lot about different ways to help people save taxes or accumulate or prepare for retirement. That's all great unless you, if you don't implement any of it or take advantage of it, you're not going to get further ahead. And that's what our advice shows us time and time again. And one study that was done uh, back in 2012 showing the value of advice to an individual Somebody who's been working with an advisor for four to six years has about one and a half times more money Mm. than somebody who isn't. When we look at the seven to 14 year time frame, it's about two times more money than the individual who is non-advised. And with over 15 years working with an advisor, you have about 2.7 times more wealth than a non-advised individual. So... You know, there's a lot of value that's being added through it through that advice channel, and the implementation is such a key po- key part of that. But uh, anybody who has questions on that, we'll certainly be discussing this over the next uh, the course of the rest of the, this year. And uh, as those July statements come out, people often may have more questions. They can feel free to give us a call. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will get back to you at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. So how do you invest if you don't have any money? Yeah, that's a tricky question, isn't it? It is. Well, it's interesting. A little study was done. If you have no debt and had $10 in your pocket right now, that gives you a greater net worth than a quarter of all Americans. Wow, it's that debt part, isn't it? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What does that say? And I'm not sure if Canada's a whole lot better. I know we're a little bit better. Um, Actually, I know we were actually worse there for a bit. We were worse for a while. It went the other way for a little while. Um, After the 2008-09, they deleveraged. I mean, they got out of debt and we were were right into it pretty good. So I think it's starting to turn. So we're about the same. Mm. So that gives you an idea. You know, 25% have negative net worth. Yikes. Like no, and, and quite often when I first started in this business, thirty coming up to thirty-two years now, a lot of my friends had negative net worth, mm-hmm. meaning you add yeah, up almost. all their assets, you add up all their debts, and the big one was student School, loans, yeah. you know, yeah. and they haven't used the brains yet to make any money. And but it's funny, as smart as some of these people are, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to accumulate wealth. And I've we've seen so many people over the years, Andy and I, that can make a lot of money 
and yet just aren't saving it. So there's really how do you invest money if you don't have how do you, if you don't have any money? It comes down to cash flow. And I literally have seen people ten years ago, and let's say they're making fifty thousand a year, and now they're making hundred fifty thousand a year, and they're not in any different shape except for the small whatever we started ten years ago. Yeah. They're still doing it, and yeah. that's it. Yeah. And it's so it's a function that their lifestyle has gone up. So you look at cash flow, and there's ways to trim back expenses. You just have to be a little creative. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what f- people give priorities to because uh, cable is one of them, oh. or, or that's huge. It wasn't even there before. I just went through that last week. Ooh, my blood pressure just oh, went up. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Man. Yeah, it's absolutely insane the package that people are paying between cable um, internet, internet yeah. and possibly a home phone, which most people are actually pulling the cord on the home phone yeah. because it's saving money because they're not going to give that beloved cable any. Yeah. You know, and we got to have the sports package or whatever. Sure. So you are starting to see some get I- into internet type mm-hmm. um, situations where yeah. they're just plugging the TV right into the internet, sure. forgetting it, cutting the cord, cutting the cord. And you're seeing, uh, you know, uh, Disney, for example, owns uh, ESPN, mm-hmm. and that's been a big problem for them that yeah. people are cutting the cord. But that's a, a lot of money. This wasn't even there when we started 30 years ago. It was like $32 a month for cable, and that yeah. was it. Yeah. And now you're looking at people are spending over $200 a month, 250 even $300 a month. Man. You know, that's if you had to say it really fast, it's okay. But when you yeah. start thinking about it, now you go a little further, cell phones. And the packages on cell phones, and yes, you can get a um, pay-as-you-go type plan, but those Mm -hmm. things there that are in your pocket that people are looking at almost any given moment uh, in any situation, to say the least, that is now an extension of them. And so they are connected. That's expensive. And so you get down the list a bit, and we go through the cash flow. And quite frankly, we're dealing with a lot of people with lots of money, but often it's the kids that we're talking, the millennials now. And it's what their priority are, priorities are. And they want to, and it's been studies showing that a lot of these millennials, they want to get to the summit. They just don't really want to climb. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they just want to get there. And so it's hard work. And I know I talked to some of my clients now that wondering what has gone on with our kids. Well, maybe it's the parenting too. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, maybe you're too good to them. Yeah. But having lunch, making your own lunch. What about coffees? Yeah. You know, right now is roll up the rim time. Yeah. Well, how much is that costing? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> But every other one I get is free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over six so far. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, Didn't you get a new bike, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, kids' activities are off the charts. Yeah. Absolutely off the charts. And it's almost to the point that if you don't have your kids and every activity going, you're a bad parent. Yeah. And I'm looking at, you know, there's dance, rep hockey, rep soccer, Music. whatever. Music, yeah, and it's and it's outrageous the cost, and so much so I had a client call me up, and she's paying off the granddaughter's dance classes because the parents were in total debt, mm. but they didn't. They still put the kids in everything because yeah. they got to keep up with the Joneses, and so it's it's interesting. You need to have a fresh set of eyes to take a look at that cash flow. Where is your money going? Mm-hmm. And there's ways to cut costs. Now, the one I, I got, I really like this one, is how to get free things on your birthday. I know it's only one day out of 365, yeah. but there's a lot of great spots to get some money free. And uh, what my favorite is the Dairy Queen. I love that. My <laughs> Join that Blizzard Club. You get a free Blizzard every year. It's a little window. 
But, you know, the keg will serve up a free yeah. slice of the Billy Marner pie. Wow. Starbucks, uh, join there. You get a free cup of coffee. You're going to be as big as a house by the time your birthday's over. It's yeah. a real, yeah, that's a that's <laughs> Traveling a to all the freebies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's Jack Astor's. You name it, and they... You know, you should never go out on your birthday without getting at least something free. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I just need 365 fake IDs. Yeah, it's that's exactly it. Yeah, every day. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, good point. Then you got a great yeah, time Yeah, but when you're, once you turn middle age, you don't want to brag about your birthday anymore. That's yeah. a problem. Yeah, that's true. Right? That changes when people get their free cups of coffee that's at McDonald's right, yeah. and once, everywhere else. Since they become seniors. <laughs> <laughs> but then once you do say, okay, here's an area that I can cut back. And you've been living okay without that, Okay. Then let's say you were able to say, I'm, I'm $200 a month. Now start a, pr- a pack. Yeah. Start a pre-authorized check, having it go directly into some investment automatically. And it could be an RSP. RSPs uh, not necessarily might not make the most sense tax-wise if, if you're in the low tax bracket, but they do make the most sense from a stickiness. Yeah. I mean, you put them in and you'll unlikely pull that money out because you don't want to pay the tax on the way out. Yeah. And it's a great force savings. I would highly recommend at least... Look at those two, cash flow analysis quickly, and save a few hundred bucks and start a pack. All right, we have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thanks, Thanks, Scott. Scott.